Amen. Our hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord now and pray. We're about to look to his word and we need his help in order to understand it rightly. And we need his spirit to come so that good things would happen now. So let's ask for his help. Our Father, we come to you on the basis of Christ's merit and his merit alone. We come covered in his blood and standing in his perfect righteousness. And so we know that we are now your people whom you have adopted and called by your own name. And so we rejoice and we trust in your faithfulness to us. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit now in abundance as we look to your word, that you would come and move in power, that you would use me as the preacher of your word, and that you would be with each of us who sit under your word, that we might have eyes to see the truth and ears to hear it and hearts that would rejoice. We know, Father, that you are faithful by your spirit to use ordinary things like preaching to accomplish extraordinary ends in our lives. So we pray that you would now transform and conform us to the image of Jesus as we sit under your perfect word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm about to say, I've said before, and we have considered before as a church, but it's never bad to be reminded. It's never bad to think about this reality again. When it comes to the Bible, if we do not understand the whole of it, we will do bad things with its parts. Say that again. When it comes to the Bible, if we don't understand the whole, we will do bad things with the parts. Or we certainly won't rightly understand the parts. This becomes very clear when we are looking to one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Have you ever observed how many sermons from the Gospels, and the Gospels, remember, record the life and the ministry of Jesus. Have you ever observed that many sermons from the Gospels end up being more about us than they are about Christ. Has a lot to do with how you understand the scripture and what it is about from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we make our way back to the gospel of Mark this morning, we are going to consider Jesus together from the word. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do open them up to Mark chapter six and verse one. We are making our way steadily through Mark's gospel. This is the eighth sermon already of 22 through this gospel account. We're going to be looking today at 56 verses, the entirety of Mark chapter six. And so now that you've had just a moment to flip there, the verses will also be up here on the screen for you to follow along as well. I'm going to read God's word for us. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? 
and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven 
and set a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dis- while he dismissed the crowd. Excuse me. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So friends, I have a series of headings for us this morning. We're going to make our way through chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. I'll give those headings to you one at a time. I'm not even really going to number them. I'm just going to try to make them plain to you. Hope they're of some help to you as we look at this wonderful passage of Scripture. So we'll begin with the first heading, hometown rejection. Hometown rejection. We're going to look at the first six verses of Mark 6 together for just a moment. Jesus makes his way home to Nazareth, which is the town in which he grew up. And the reception is not a good one. In Luke's gospel, we'll think about this some later, there was another time that he also went to Nazareth and the reception was not good then either. We see in verse two that on the the Sabbath day, Jesus goes into the synagogue and began teaching as was his custom. He did this quite often. And people on the one hand are astonished at him. They are astonished at his teaching. They're astonished at the wisdom that he possesses. And it also seems end of verse 2, that they had at least heard of the mighty works that he had been doing. They're astonished and they're a little bit confused. How was he doing all of this? But on the other hand, in verse 3, we see that it was not just astonishment. It wasn't even just confusion that they had toward Christ. They also reject him quite clearly. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now that's a derogatory statement. In this context, a man generally would have been introduced as the son of his father. So this is sort of calling into question the circumstances of Jesus' birth. I mean, you remember, like most do, that the angel came and told Mary that she would have a son, and Joseph and Mary were not yet married. And so it appeared quite scandalous that Mary was pregnant. She was with child and was not yet married to her husband. So here again is this kind of backhanded way of insulting Christ and insinuating that his birth was illegitimate. Is not this the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? We know where he comes from. And they took offense at him. We see verse 3. This reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah, that he would be despised and rejected by men. That as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In one sense, this 
reception. And we even see Jesus speak to this. He says the prophet in verse four is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. We see that Jesus marvels because of their unbelief, verse six. In one sense, Nazareth serves as this kind of microcosm of world history in terms of rejection of the Lord Jesus. And it's a good reminder for all of us that mighty works, miracles, signs, and wonders, and even wisdom, neither of those things bring people to faith in Christ. Mighty works, wisdom, are not what saves anyone. If you think about Luke chapter 16, the parable that Jesus tells there about the rich man and Lazarus, how there's a rich man and then a poor man. The rich man's name is not given. Lazarus is the name of the poor man, and both of these individuals die. The rich man goes to Hades. Lazarus, the poor man, goes to Abraham's side. The rich man, in his torment, begs that Lazarus would be able to dip his finger in cool water and come give him some kind of relief, to which Abraham says, well, that's not possible. There's a great chasm that's been fixed between us and you. And then the rich man pleads, well, at least send Lazarus to my father's household and warn my brothers, lest they too be in torment in this flame. To which Abraham responds in the parable, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man objects. He says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone comes back from the dead, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham again replies, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We see this happening even here in the earthly ministry of Christ. People will sometimes say, if God would just do fill in the blank, then I'd believe. If God would just do this, if God would just show me that, then I would believe. And the answer to that is, well, no, you wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. The only way that anyone comes to believe is through beholding the Lord Jesus from Moses and the prophets in the word of God. The spirit of God takes the word of God and performs a miracle in the lives of all of the children of God that we might believe. For the Nazarenes, we see that their rejection of Jesus in verse five is to their own detriment. See the words there, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. So it's not that Jesus was somehow hindered, like it was impossible for him to do a miracle because he even, I mean, does some, he heals people. Jesus not doing a mighty work amongst the people is essentially a judgment upon them. It's not an inability on the part of Christ. It is a judgment upon the people for their hardness of heart. Remember what Jesus had said even in chapter four of Mark's gospel, with the measure you use, this is verse 24 and following of Mark chapter four, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Or as John puts it in his gospel, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. Second heading for our time together this morning. We're going to give it 
this title, Foreshadowing of the Church. So we've thought about hometown rejection. We're now going to think about foreshadowing of the church in verses 7 through 13. So whenever we see Jesus commissioning his disciples to go out and preach, to go out and proclaim the message about him, whenever he gives them authority over demons and authority to heal people, what we need to be thinking and understanding in the text is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus continues to say these things. The kingdom of God is at hand in that Messiah is on the scene. This is a new era in redemptive history that is beginning. It's dawning. And so he is sending out his apostles, his sent ones, to herald the news of his coming, to call people to repentance. And so what we see, even in verses 7 through 13, as he is sending his disciples out to do this kind of work, we see a precursor of the establishment of the church. It's beginning already. Jesus is training and commissioning these men who had been with him to go out and preach good news about him, through which the church would be established. And the power of God would be given to them through signs and wonders and healings and the like, so that their message might be vindicated. We see that unfold most notably in the book of Acts as we read through the story of redemptive history. We see too, even in these verses, you, you see how Jesus tells them, verse 8 and following, take nothing with you except a staff. Don't take any bread, no bag, no money. Put shoes on, you know, but don't even take an extra outer garment. Don't even take a change of clothes, right? Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. So this even we see is a pattern that will develop more fully in the church where many ministers of the gospel would be supported by the people. You can read even in Luke 10 where Jesus in a similar kind of situation when he sends his disciples out, tells them not to take anything with them. And he says, for the laborer deserves his wages. Let the people take care of you where you go and preach. But then you see in verse 11, he's sending them out. He's giving them power. He's telling them to preach. He's saying, let the people provide for you. But he anticipates that there may very well be places that do not receive what they have to say. Verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them, against that place. So shaking the dust off of your feet is something that Jews would have done when they passed through foreign pagan lands in the context of the Old Covenant. So in other words, what Christ is telling his followers to do, his apostles to do, is that when you go to a place and you preach and you call people to repentance and they reject what you have to say, shake the dust off of your feet in order to essentially state that these people are outsiders. These people are not a part of my covenant people, just like Jews would do in shaking the dust off their feet when they would go through Gentile land. These people were outside of God's covenant. So even there we see this reality that believing and receiving the message about Christ and the message of the scripture is part and parcel of what it means to be in God's covenant people. Next heading for our consideration. We're making our way through. We're going to spend, I'd say, half of our time today on verses 30 through 52. So we're just kind of making our way there. Now we get this interjection in verses 14 and following, and we're going to call this heading mistaken identity. Mistaken identity. So in verses 14 to 29, we get this kind of interjection where Mark starts to write about this confusion that exists about who Jesus is. And remember that question you know, that we're asking throughout this gospel is, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? You can put your eyes on verse 14. Now, King Herod 
So this is Herod the Great's son. So Herod the Great was the king when Jesus was an infant and a toddler who commissioned the killing of like all male children two years old and under right, amongst God's people in the region of Judea. And so uh, this is his son who is now a ruler in the province that would contain Galilee. And so King Herod has heard of Jesus. He's just being a, becoming aware of what Jesus is doing. There's a lot of hoopla and fanfare around Christ. People don't know who he is. You see verse 14. Some say this is John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. Others are saying he's Elijah, perhaps resurrected, or perhaps the Elijah who was prophesied to come as the forerunner to the Christ, who would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, right? Others are saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Again, perhaps resurrected, or perhaps he's just a prophet like Moses. He's performing these great and powerful signs. He's doing all these awesome things, and that's why. But then for Herod's part, in verse 16, when he heard it, he's convinced that it's John the Baptist resurrected. He's had John the Baptist executed, and we get the story about how that happened. And for Herod's part, he's like, yeah, this is, this is what it is. This is who Jesus is. John the Baptist come back from the dead. Mark, we know, has been clear about John's identity up to now. He's been clear that he's the son of God. He's been clear that he is Messiah, God's chosen one. So we should have that in our minds even as we read this story. Quite a story it is, by the way, of how John's death comes about. A lot of corruption exists within Herod's household. John was speaking true things about that. Herod's reaction to John is interesting because on the one hand, he's troubled in listening to John, but then he hears him gladly. That's also so true of many people who are on the one hand perplexed when they hear the truth of God, but then kind of listen to it happily at the same time. I'm mindful of even a man like Ben Franklin. This is sort of like a history aside for the history geeks in the room. So Ben Franklin, obviously a tremendously influential figure in the history of our own country, was not a believer, but was known to regularly want to listen to a, a famous preacher named George Whitfield. He would often make it a priority to listen to Whitfield preach. And people would ask him, well, like, why do you go listen to Whitfield? You don't believe what he's saying. And he said, well, no, but he does. He's a compelling communicator and a compelling preacher, and I like to go listen to him. Perhaps Herod's situation is not altogether different. Perplexed on some levels, but also gladly listening to John. So John's death comes about as a result of corruption, sin, promises that Herod makes. And what we need to see even in the death of John the Baptist is that as great as he was and as significant as he was in redemptive history, this man, the forerunner of the Christ, has perished. This last Old Testament prophet is now dead. And here we are. The Messiah is on the scene and there's all this confusion around his identity. We're now going to move forward into verses 30 through 52 and camp out here for just a little while. The heading that I'm giving these verses is something greater is here. Something greater is here. All right, so there is fulfillment going on all over the place in these 23 verses that we're about to consider. So have the Old Testament in your mind as we look at these verses together. So the apostles come back to Jesus. They've been on their mission. They're tired. Jesus says, hey, let's withdraw. Let's go to a desolate place, a remote place, so that you can get some rest and even eat some food and things like that. 
The crowds recognize not only Jesus, but apparently the 12. And so even as Jesus and the 12 get into a boat, the crowd rushes and races on foot to the other side of the lake so that they can be there when Jesus and the disciples arrive. Now in verse 34, Jesus and his disciples, they make it ashore. And we see that Jesus has compassion on the great crowd because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This sounds very similar to Ezekiel chapter 34. The Lord, in speaking about the corrupt rulers and leaders of Israel, brings an indictment against them in Ezekiel 34. And he says that he himself will rescue his sheep from them. In Ezekiel 34, 11 and following, words like this show up. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Verses 23 and following of that same chapter of Ezekiel. And I will set up over them my people, my sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant, David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So when we see this language of Jesus looking around and seeing people who are like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them, he is going to show them love. He's going to show them not only love, but compassion. And he's going to teach and lead and guide them. He's going to shepherd them. When we see language like that, immediately our thoughts, biblically speaking, should be drawn to the fact that Jesus is the promised shepherd of God's people. He is the greater David, the shepherd king who would come, who would shepherd the flock of God. He is the good shepherd and he is the greater David. There's more going on here, though. In verse 32, you see that they went away in the boat to a desolate place. In verse 35, put your eyes there. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. So now the hour is late and they go on to say some other things. We need to realize that when we see desolate place there, the setting is none other than a wilderness kind of setting. Desolate equals wilderness in our minds. Jesus has people. He's shepherding his flock. He has people in the wilderness. Jesus has people sit down when they're trying to figure out how are we going to feed these people? What are we going to do with them? Jesus in verse 39 commands all of the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. The shepherd of God's people asks them to lie down in green pasture. And he has them sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, just like Moses did with the tribe of Israel in the wilderness after they had crossed the Red Sea. Like things like this are not accidental, right? In the way that the Bible is written. But then in verses 38 through 42, and then even in verse 44, there's this dilemma. How are we going to feed these people in this wilderness place? Where are we going to get food? We need to send them away, Jesus. Or these people are going to be go home. They're going to go hungry. People are going to be falling out. We've got to get them something to eat. How are we going to do that? And we see, simply put, that Jesus is going to feed this massive throng of people in the wilderness with bread from heaven. 
He's going to gather a few loaves and a couple of fish and he's going to pray and bless that. He takes the five loaves, verse 41, and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. We see in verse 43, there's extra, but even that has this interesting detail in it. They took up not eight, not nine, not 10 or 11, but 12 baskets of leftover pieces, this bread from heaven. 12 is a significant number we know. It's the number of tribes of Israel. It's the number of apostles that exist, representing the new Israel being made out of the old. And so just keep all of these things in mind. That Jesus, in one sense, is acting like Moses. He is having the people sit down. They're in the wilderness. He feeds them with bread from heaven, just like the Israelites were fed with manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16. But then it doesn't stop there. What happens immediately next? Let's put our eyes on verses 45 and following. We now have a miraculous crossing of a body of water. We've just had bread from heaven in the wilderness, and now we're going to have a miraculous crossing of a body of water. The disciples get in the boat. Jesus tells them to get in the boat and head before him to the other side. He's going to handle the crowd and dismiss them. He takes care of that. Verse 46, he goes up on the mountain to pray. And then when evening comes, the boat is out on the sea and Jesus is alone on the land. The disciples are laboring. though. Verse 48, we see this. Jesus sees that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that would have been between three and six in the morning. So like wee hours of the morning. He came to them walking on the sea. The psalmist in Psalm 77 is helpful to us here. Consider these words from Psalm 77, 11 and following. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The psalmist is thinking about a particular event, a great, a great and mighty act of God. Here we go, verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. And the earth trembled and shook. And then this. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in seeing Jesus miraculously cross water like he has done here in Mark's gospel, seeing him come to his disciples the way that he has. He is mighty in the deep waters. His way is through the deep, but his footprints could not be seen. The psalmist is making quite clear when he's talking about the the context that he's writing in. He's looking back to the great work of God in the Exodus when he took his people through the Red Sea. God was going with his people through the sea. God was with them and going before them even, but his footprints were unseen. There was an event in the mind of the psalmist. So when we read Psalm 77 and then we see what Jesus is doing in Mark's gospel, a couple of things should come to mind. My goodness, Jesus is the Lord. 
He's God. But then second, what Jesus is doing is remarkably similar to what God did with his people in the Exodus in bringing them through the Red Sea. In verse 50, we see that the disciples are terrified. I mean, I can understand to see a a man walking on water in the middle of the night as we're struggling against wind in the boat. They're afraid. And then Jesus speaks to them in verse 50. Take heart, it is I. Literally in the original language, take heart, I am, is the wording. Do not be afraid. Then Jesus gets in the boat in verse 51. The wind stops. The disciples are astounded because, Mark says, verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves, that their hearts were hardened. So somehow the loaves and this walking on water thing are connected. I mean, that's what Mark's saying. The disciples did not understand what's going on because they didn't understand what was really happening with the loaves even. It wasn't just that Jesus is performing a great miracle to feed thousands of people, as awesome as that is. There's a lot more going on from the perspective of redemptive history. The greater Moses is here. The greater Exodus is about to be performed. It's about to be accomplished. Jesus has fed his people in the wilderness. He is their shepherd. And now he is crossing a body of water miraculously, just like what happened under Moses many, many years before. In Luke chapter 9, it's a passage about the transfiguration of Jesus. So in Luke 9, 28 to 31 in that area, many are familiar with the account. Jesus is transfigured. He is manifesting himself in his glorified awesomeness, right? And he's having a conversation with two other individuals in that context. He's talking with Moses and he's talking with Elijah. Peter and James and John see this on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, when Jesus is talking to Moses and he's talking to Elijah, he is talking about, it says, they were talking about his departure. And again, original language, this is where some of that is important. They were talking about, the literal word is, the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. You can turn there if you want to. Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 just for us to see this and help us make connections in God's word. So to say that Jesus is going to accomplish the greater exodus is entirely right and good. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That word spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Jesus, quite simply, the sermon title is already there. It probably gave away all of the thunder. I didn't need to kind of build it up like, hey, where did we see, you know, wilderness feedings and miraculous water crossings in the Old Testament? We saw it in the Exodus and the greater Exodus is about to be accomplished. So in other words, the Exodus that happened in delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt happened because it was a pointer to what Jesus would do on behalf of his people one day. Sometimes we can maybe think that the relationship is is backwards, that somehow like the exodus happened and then now God is going to do things through Christ that mirror that. No, the exodus happened because Jesus would come and would accomplish a greater one. Israel was in bondage in Egypt. They were enslaved. Jesus would set his people free from bondage to Satan and sin and death. As powerful as Pharaoh was, as powerful as Egypt was in its context, 
as significant as that slavery was, it is nothing in comparison to the kind of bondage that every human being is born under as a fallen child of Adam. And so there had to be a redeemer who would come to rescue God's people and deliver us from bondage to the enemy and bondage to sin and bondage to death. The exodus happened because Christ was coming. So, brothers and sisters, quite simply, consider where we once were. Consider what we once were. Slaves. To what? To sin. We were following our passions, our desires, our cravings. So sometimes, sometimes people will talk about not wanting to come to Jesus because we want to be able to be free to do what we want to do. It's like, look, if you think that you're free naturally, I don't think you're seeing things clearly. You're in bondage. You're in bondage. You're in bondage to your sin and your lusts and your cravings and your desires, like I've already said. You are in bondage to the enemy. This is Ephesians 2, 1 and following. We are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, namely the devil. We're in bondage even under death. Our bodies are perishing. We're far from free. We were, in spite of any pleasure we might experience, deep down at the heart of the matter, there is a misery associated with being a fallen human being. There are physical miseries, emotional miseries, mental and rational miseries. For those of us who are trusting in Christ in this room, because we are not yet fully sanctified and not yet glorified, we still feel the weight of that corruption. We feel the weight of that struggle. That war is real. We feel those miseries as a result of being a fallen human. This is true of every person. Those miseries exist. You read the news, you get on social media, you watch a movie or your favorite TV show or you pick up a book and misery and suffering is everywhere. Not only were we in bondage, not only were we miserable in so many different ways, we were also guilty, like really guilty. There's a thing called a conscience. Everybody has it. And everybody's conscience in one way or another chases after them and accuses them. We are all seeking to justify ourselves, to vindicate ourselves somehow. Because we know deep down that we're guilty. We don't meet our own standards. This is where we were. And we also stood condemned rightly before our creator. We were born under condemnation. But then think about what Jesus came to do. In coming to accomplish this exodus, this great salvation, this great rescue operation on behalf of God's people. What did he do? 
Well, he came and he followed his father's every word. Every word that the father ever spoke, Jesus followed it. Perfectly, he did. He kept every part and every piece, every dot, every iota of God's law. And so the good news, friends, part of the good news is that that perfect righteous record of Christ is counted to anybody who trusts in him. If we look away from our own notions of our own goodness, if we look away from our performance, our works and all of those things and place our faith in Jesus, his righteous life is ours. All the righteousness we would ever need is counted to us the moment we trust Christ. We can't add to that. We can't take away from that either. And all of his merits we now own. So we were once enemies of God. We were not in right relationship with him. But now in Christ, we are adopted. We are loved and we are known by the Father. We are in the Father's arms because of Christ. We're not struggling to get there. But Jesus also came to bear the curse of sin and hell. All of that stuff we were just talking about, slavery and misery and guilt and condemnation, fallenness, wreckage, evil, all of that. Christ rescued us by becoming a curse for us. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We deserved a death under God's perfect and holy and just law. The penalty for breaking God's law is death and condemnation, and we deserve that. But then Jesus, the perfect sacrifice in our place, takes our sin upon himself and dies the death that we deserve, and it's counted to us. So when Paul in Galatians chapter 2 says that I have been crucified with Christ, what he means is that I really died in Jesus. Like that death he died is counted to me. And so I am free now. The penalty's paid. My substitute paid it for me. This is called penal substitution. The substitute paid the penalty. There's a dust up all the time. We were talking about this even before the service started about penal substitution. There are Guys who are really smart, who know theology, who say stupid things about this doctrine. They will say that, you know, the good news is that the kingdom has come. It's like, I agree with you that Jesus says, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What does he mean, though? The kingdom of God is at hand is, hey, Messiah is here. Well, what did Messiah come to do? He came to save a people through his life and through his sacrifice. We're going to sing after the service that Jesus bled for Adam's helpless race. That's what he came to do. If there is no such thing as penal substitution, then we need to get the heck out of here. We're wasting our time. God is a just God who will execute perfect justice. And praise be to Jesus' name that he took it for you and me. So when he laying his life down on the cross, it's far more than just some wonderful example that's supposed to move me emotionally. 
It is far more than that. Greater love hath no man than he who lays his life down for his friends. Yeah, he doesn't just mean like do a deed that's going to be motivated. He's talking about a ransom, a purchasing of his people. That's what he came to do. So when he's on the cross and he's dying and he's giving up his spirit and he says it's finished. He means righteousness is accomplished. Atonement is accomplished. It's over. He says it's finished and we say it is well because of what he did. In Christ, we are justified. That means declared to be righteous. It's not that we are righteous. It's not that righteousness is infused into us. It's not that our faith or our obedience are counted to us in some way, like faith and obedience are somehow our righteousness. No, faith is a means through which the righteousness of Jesus is counted to sinners and wretches like us. We are declared by the Father righteous purely because of Christ, apart from anything that we could ever do. The law has been fulfilled. The penalty has been paid. We are no longer under the law. We are under grace and we are free in Christ. So you talk about an exodus. You talk about a deliverance from slavery. This is the greatest message of deliverance that the world has ever known. It was what the world was made for. To put this message of deliverance on display. We are no longer under the guilt of the law. We no longer fear condemnation. We are free in Christ Jesus unto righteousness. We were talking about this yesterday in the membership class. This comes up a lot. The relationship between our justification Declared righteous, completely by faith, apart from any work we could ever do, all grounded in the grace of God, all accomplished by Jesus. The relationship between justification and then our sanctification, which is a process. We are being conformed and transformed, transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. It's important that we would understand biblically that when we're told that we are free in Christ, We are not free unto licentiousness, not unto disobedience. We are free unto obedience. How? Think about Romans 6, when Paul talks about the objection, he anticipates, he says, you know, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? And the answer is by no means. He doesn't then give people a bunch of commands. He talks about their identity in the Lord Jesus. You've been united to Christ by faith. You were buried with him in baptism. You've been raised now to walk in newness of life in Christ. And then he goes on to tell us about how we are no longer under the dominion of sin. And then he tells us that we, by the work of God in us and through us, have become obedient from the heart. That's how this works. We are set free from bondage to sin. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are united to Jesus by faith. Sin no longer dominates us. We become obedient from the heart. So on the one hand, we obey simply because we can now. And the assumption is that redeemed people want to obey God. We delight in the law of God in our inner man, Romans 7. And so 
Praise be to God's name that we now in Christ actually can obey the Lord. So when Jesus talks about those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. We are free from all of this. Bondage and slavery and guilt and condemnation. We are freed from fear. We don't have to anticipate wrath or judgment or any of those things anymore. We have been freed from the dominion of sin over us and are made able by the Spirit of God to obey. Imperfectly, but really. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We're going to look now as we just kind of continue to think about something greater is here. Let's put our eyes on verses 53 to 56 for just a moment. Now that we see this great foreshadowing of the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem with his death and his resurrection, we now get this. They cross back over the sea. You know, so Jesus walks out to them. He gets in the boat and they finish the journey. They come on land, verse 53. When they get out of the boat in verse 54, we see that the people immediately recognize Jesus and it's like a frenzy. Verse 55, they ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds wherever to wherever they heard he was. So wherever he came, whether it's a village or a city or a countryside, this is happening. All of the sick and the lame, the disabled, all of these kinds of people are being brought to Christ in massive numbers. So one way that we could describe this is like Jesus, Jesus is healing everybody, right? He's healing a lot of people. So in all of this healing, we've seen Jesus heal people already, even in Mark's gospel. Some of the accounts are given to us in detail and they have significance of their own. Like for example, some of the healings on the Sabbath day, or we're gonna see even later on, you know, the healing of certain blind individuals and where they're situated in the gospel, it matters significantly there. But when we see these descriptions of just massive healing, we need to be thinking about what those things signify. So we thought about the fact that the kingdom of God has come, that Messiah is here. That is signified by this healing ministry. The kingdom of God is on the scene now. And this massive amount of healing the sick and the lame and all, it testifies to the identity of Jesus as to who he is and what he came to bring. So there was another time when Jesus was in Nazareth that Luke records for us in the fourth chapter of his gospel. In verses 16 and following of Luke 4, you can just listen to God's word here. This is how it goes. And he came to Nazareth, he being Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Here we go. Here's the prophet's words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when we see these kinds of things happening, healing and restoration and him proclaiming liberty to people who are in bondage. We see that he is none other than the promised one of whom Isaiah wrote, who would come to set God's people free. 
from all kinds of bondage and all kinds of slavery. In the Old Testament, we read about something that's referred to as the year of Jubilee, the year of favor. So every 50 years in the people, within the people of Israel, all debts were forgiven. Slaves were released. All these things happened. So when Jesus is saying, I'm coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's talking about this kind of deliverance. Debts forgiven, slaves set free. All of these things represented by this healing and restoration kind of ministry that he does over and over again in the Gospels. So friends, in short, if we were going to sum up what Mark chapter 6 is pointing us to, it's to the fact that Jesus has come to accomplish a greater exodus than Moses accomplished, to set his people free from bondage to sin and death and hell and Satan. And he has come to proclaim favor and jubilee forever in him. All because of him and all through him and what only he could do. We gather every week in desperate need of what only Jesus can provide for us. And he has provided this, freedom from all of these things, righteousness that we desperately need. He has made a way for us to live with God forever. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask that you would use the preaching of your word to accomplish your purposes in our lives. We pray that you would use even the Lord's table as we turn our attention to it now to continue to sustain our faith. Use this gathering and our time together even throughout the rest of this Lord's day to continue to conform us to the image of your son. We come knowing that we are sinners. We come knowing that we do not measure up to your perfect standard. We come knowing that in ourselves we deserve judgment. And we come rejoicing because we know that in Christ Jesus, none of that will face us. We pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, that you would fill us with hope and confidence and peace because of what Christ has done, and we pray that we would know rest in him. So use this preaching and this table for those ends we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.